Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We are going to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what got left by the side of the road. And in this episode, we are doing that by finishing our analysis of the DMG2 from 4th edition D&D. Brandis? Well, so we're, we're launching into Chapter 5 here. This chapter is called Adventures. It's, it's kind of a curious name for it, in terms of what's really here. But that's okay. Um, I, I love a lot of things in this book. I think I've been nothing if not effusive in my praise of this book. This is the chapter that, I think more than any other in this book, lit our imaginations on fire when we first got it. Because we liked some of the ideas around uh, treasure and how it is doled out that this brings up so much as just uh, new ways to think about all of this. And, and ultimately, you can kind of sum it up as, did you know you can store other concepts inside the bucket of magic item than an actual object that you hold? Because you can. Well, I mean, this chapter of of all the I made I have little three by five cards, one for each chapter, and of all the chapters, this one has the most notes on it of things that I want to say about it. Nice. Um, so I think I think I agree with your assessment that also this is the chapter that when this book came out, this is the one that fired me up the most, and in, in my my general group of friends, this is the one that you know fired us up the most. Right, and I mean all of our commentary about skill challenges and the problems of skill challenges that chapter on skill challenges is fire it is so good oh yeah i mean look there's uh, there's a lot of critique that can be thrown at that chapter and and i think i did um but i still respect it as a nice piece of game design I right mean, like so we're all talking about it now from from the lofty height of 2020 and like mid fifth edition, but man, when when that landed in two thousand nine, it was such a big step forward with all the tech and all the thinking and all the advice. Uh, I don't want to go back to it, right? Uh, it, conversationally, I just want to make sure people understand uh, my whole message about this book and and the message that you and I are are sharing. I think. Uh, so if I were to, if, if I, if you said, Hey, Sam, we've only got two minutes left. What's your, what do you want to say about this book? Here's what I would say about it. This book is the answer that Wizards of the Coast is providing for people who say that you cannot role play in fourth edition D and D. Yeah, I agree with that. Or that fourth edition D and D is a video game or that it's just world of Warcraft on paper. I, I think I agree with all of those statements. Uh, I, I agree that this book is the refutation of those accusations. Uh, I, I don't know that it sticks sticks every single part of the landing on that, but boy, is it strong. I think it's a, it's a strong pushback on that idea. And because of that, I think it was a, it was intentional. And so I think a lot of the things that are in this particular chapter are really speaking to, hey, numbskulls, here's what you would do in D&D. 
and here's how you do it in this edition, just like you could do it in third edition and second edition and first edition, right? Yeah. Um, I agree. Maybe they didn't stick the landing on everything, right? But um, yeah. So, so the sidebar to to your point about different things to do with magic and different ways to do things. The sidebar on page one thirty seven about applying a boon to an item. That is just. It's like chef's kids. Uh, oh, oh, for sure. It's great. It's, it's absolutely about building a legend in the item. Right. That's, that's excellent. Um, like you can very easily see how like you, you start off with, Oh, I made this item cool. It's now plus one. Well, this it made this item cooler. It now does an additional thing and stays plus one. And then you keep, keep ramping it up from there. Right. That. Yeah. Yeah. Of course that works. Um, and probably we don't talk quite enough about how, uh, hey, look, if the PC is willing to uh, have more of their overall like potential gold value wrapped up in one item that could potentially be lost or whatever, uh, letting it have a, a piece of a feature from another magic item is okay. right? Like, if you want to think of it as over-enchanting the magic item, sure. right? It, it's okay. You can do all kinds of stuff, and a lot of this is a lot of this chapter is just saying, "You guys are you guys have blinders on? Just drop the blinders and, and go for it, right?" Like the, the huge sidebar on one thirty eight, a reward based game. Like it, it's absolutely about don't don't handcuff yourself. Just like just recognize that. There are a lot of different things you could do just to keep the math right, and as long as you're not, you know, messing with the math too hard, it's going to be okay. Do yeah. the thing. The, Follow your bliss. The uh, the sidebar for the audience is a reward based game, but the rewards are not magic items. Right. So it's basically how to run a no magic item or very very low magic item campaign. And the thing is, like, this is exactly what you get when you run Dark Sun. Right, yep. have inherent bonuses because fourth edition in in other settings and in the default setting has an expectation that you will have a certain bonus magic item, a certain bonus to your two hit and all that stuff in within the magic items that you own. But in Dark Sun, you don't have that. So instead, you have what they call inherent bonuses, which you get on level up in lieu of the standard magic items because you're not getting magic items. And really the sidebar is just expanding on that and basically giving you permission to do it in any setting you want in any campaign you want. Yep. Uh, right. And, and it, you know, they come out and say uh, in a standard D and D campaign characters find heaps of gold partly so they can buy or enchant magic items. They choose. Well, yeah. Like that, that note there is going to map forward to the situation in 5e very, very clearly. You you aren't probably spending your gold on buying or enchanting magic items, though you can now. There's rules for it that you can use. It's just, it's not easy or cheap. Um, and your need for attunable magic items does have a clear upper limit. Um, but but yeah, like the, the, the advice here is good, and I think it it winds up um, informing a lot of the design of fifth edition. Uh, 
you know, if you're spending this much time correcting the the math of AC defense tech and damage bonuses, it doesn't take a lot of thought to go from, boy, I'm putting a lot of work into this to, what if I didn't do this? What if this wasn't necessary? Wouldn't that be kind of great, actually? And uh, the answer is yes, it would be great, actually. <laughs> um, anyway, um, we're going to so we're going to go through all the different types of reward types that this uh, introduces uh, because they're cool, uh, and and because uh, two of them really uh, became core things in uh, in five e. They're they're in the DMG. They're they're real. People don't use them as much as they could, but they're real. Well, they don't use them because they're in the DMG and nobody reads that. Fair cop, right? <laughs> um, so, so the first one is Divine Boons, uh, which you should read as Supernatural Charms. That's what we call them in 5e. It's Supernatural Charms. Uh, we're finally really starting to see like official adventures engage with, oh yeah, we have rules for like you have a, a cool temporary benefit that is like great actually. Maybe we could let you use that for all kinds of unusualness. Yeah. Uh, um, Ross Maiden has uh, Chewingas in it that will provide a boon. Yep. Um, and I think to some extent, to Tomb of Annihilation, um, the, uh, the Tomb of the Forgotten Gods um, was like in that direction. You're right. Yes. The, the Tomb of the Forgotten Yeah. Because they also, they have the, the, um, the what is it? Are there four or eight of the ancient gods or whatever that have inhabited the tombs and the temples, and that they're the trickster gods? Um, yep. That can provide certain effects if you let them possess you. Yep. Which is basically that's just temporary boons, and you know. Yep. This stuff says the boons, the boons coming from the gods. Uh, I think Five uh, E is right to de-emphasize that and sort of spread it out to any supernatural thing could do this. Such as an archfey or an archdevil. Great, I, I, I'm down. Um, and of course, I say that having written a whole PDF about that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not unbiased, folks. Uh, this is a promotion, right? But it's a promotion of a really good product. Thank you, Sam. That's very kind. Um, the the boons here are very cool. They go through each of the gods that are core to to. 4e and offer a thing they do and they're they're leveled like any other magic item they're just objectless magic items right that's fine like it, it can't be taken away because there's no object to take away from you but right. Right. okay whatever um at, whereas in 5e it's uh, an objectless magic item that doesn't take an attunement slot right Great. and you know in here it's described as uh this is something that um you know, you can turn it into a role-playing element, right? Yeah. There, there is, it, it, you know, it talks about when you, when they, when the divine boon is manifest, you know, this does not happen in a vacuum. Like there is, you know, the deity has noticed a PC, do something with that, you know? Yep. Don't just do the boon, do something else, make it important. You don't have to do something else mechanically speaking. You can do something within the storyline, Right. Yeah, and um, 
going back to so, so within D and D next, we saw um, the the earliest version of Eldritch invocations that that acted like supernatural charms and had outward physical manifestations that you had been changed in this way, and that was great. Um, and some of that now shows up in supernatural charms. Um, I, uh, Descent into Avernus introduces a bunch more um, diabolic supernatural charms um, and supernatural gifts that are they're really, really cool. And they have outwardly visible effects on you, and that's great. That's really cool. Um, because it's informing how you think about your character, maybe. Um, I, I think that, you know, a character's visual aesthetic um, should be important to you, frankly. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, sure. And people being freaked out because uh, you, you know, looked one way uh, the last time they saw you, and now you. Uh, I don't know, have an odor of death about you or uh, flies buzz around you all the time or whatever it is that that it's weird. Cause it should be weird. Like you're dealing with the arch devils. That's probably bad. Yeah. And, and by the same token, uh, even if uh, you get a divine boon from a, from a good source, uh, the people might notice and, and get scared. Right. Yep. Well, you're right. There's a reason the angels say, be not afraid. Right, right. Well, because traditional, you know, biblical angels actually are horrific in appearance. But anyway, right. Uh, uh, so Roka says every angel is terrifying. Right. Um, so, uh, so two things. Uh, so there's this really uh, m- this movie. It's a um, oh, what's the guy who's oh John Travolta? John Travolta starred as the archangel <laughs> yeah. Michael, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And in that movie, he smelled like fresh baked cookies, and so. Everywhere he went, like the people who got close to him, who he kind of relaxed around, they would smell fresh baked cookies. And it was kind of this offhanded, like odd thing that kind of didn't really amount to much or whatever. It didn't really mean anything in the movie other than just, oh, hey, he's a he's a good angel. So, of course, he smells like something wonderful, right? Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, that's exactly the type of thing in a and d game that gets noticed, right? Yep. Uh, every time a certain character comes around, you smell burnt toast. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe it's just a weird quirk, but maybe that that creature, whatever it is, whether it's a humanoid or not, got cursed by something or blessed by something, and its manifestation in the natural physical world means that people with nostrils of a humanoid smell burnt toast when they're around that person. Like, yep. who knows what that means, right? It, maybe it means that they're uh, Toast the Knowing from Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Um, so in my in my D and D brief game, there is actually a divine boon that happens. I won't tell you when or what because <laughs> I haven't released that episode yet. It's it's the next, not next one, but the one after that. Um, but you'll know when it happens. You'll be like, that's what Sam was talking about, um, because it scares the people and puts them in awe. Nice, right? Very good. Um, because when you have something that is divine that occurs. If it's truly divine, if it's if it's truly something, I mean, if it happens to a PC when the PC's alone, like, okay, fine. But if it happens in public or if it manifests in public, that scares the hell out of people, and it should. Yep. Right? 
Um, and it might, you know, in the real world, that would become a pilgrimage site. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're talking about things that are massively important to certain groups of people in the world. I, I will just say, if you can get an NPC to write a hagiography of a PC, that would be outstanding. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be cool. So uh, next we have legendary boons. Yep. Um, so so legendary boons are just great. They're um, so the thing I think these represent for in five E the way they've been brought forward to five E are, are the I want to say they're called epic boons. They're, they're your post twenty advancement. Yeah, I think that's what they're called. There is a moderately long list of cool things you can buy once you're twentieth level, but you don't want to stop playing, right? And and we talked earlier in the twelve days about um, well, I, I'm twentieth level. Does that mean the campaign has to stop? Like you promised me that I'd get to be cool. Now I'm here. I'd like to be cool. Now I'm ready to kick it. Give me right. some to kick. Right. Like, uh, I, all right, I've, sa- I've saved the world. Is there something bigger I can pl- I can save, please? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so the uh, the legendary boons, um, in addition to being cool uh, objectless magic items, um, or, or actually th- these often do have objects, um, these are just some cool, cool magic item design. They're wild. Let's clarify that. They're objects, but they're not like a sword, an axe, a shield, a cloak you know they're uh more esoteric than that yeah or m- more um eccentric right. than right. that right so 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 right the book of five truths is a magic item that you don't have to take with you you just once you read from it you have that now and that's great um right the quickening waters you drink it now you have this yeah you receive fortune's nod right right I, they're just they're really cool things, um, and I don't know if just this chapter had been released, I'd still say the book was good, frankly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so finally, we get Grandmaster Training, um, and Grandmaster Training is uh, another of those things. Like this, in combination with Legendary Boons, um, is just I don't want to say this. Um, it feels like achievement-based advancement. It feels like, hey, we set out to um, accomplish this thing, and we kind of unlocked a new class feature, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We unlocked a new permanent thing that that makes us cool that we don't have to like trade out because we got a better thing in that slot or whatever. Um, and, and like, I love Grandmaster training. The, the examples here do feel like. Well, you went to the monastery and learned from the the, the wise old monk, or mm-hmm. you you went and found Hattori Hanzo and uh, he showed you what's what. Just all all that great kind of training montage stuff, where the training montage is the reward for the quest, right? Um, and then you get a permanent ability afterwards. Yep. Yeah, like, like in my game, I've done really small versions of that. Uh, there have been quests the PCs have gone on that have uh, given them a permanent bonus to things that weren't their primary stats. Uh, mm-hmm. There was also a really long quest 
uh, to recover this uh, this magical scroll, uh, where at the end everyone who was a big part of that quest got additional proficiency in the religion skill. Okay, nice. Like it was a holy scroll; they got mm-hmm. to study it, and now they know religion stuff that right. is beyond what they could get from any standard book. Sure. Right. Like it's not mechanically heavy hitting by any stretch of the imagination, but it is awfully nice. And there aren't that many other ways that are convenient for say a fighter to pick up the religion skill. Right. And in the right context, the knowledge that fighter now has can make them highly esteemed. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's come up uh, several times since then. And it's been just a nice little bit. It's a nice thing. Yeah. That's cool. I like it. But I also really like their advice around giving grandmasters a vivid personality um, and goals and desires. Like, really treat them with respect as an NPC because they're going to matter to the PC because they they, they give the PC a permanent cool thing. Uh, like, it's very much this NPC is now showing up on that PC's character sheet permanently in the form of a power. Right. Your PC is going to love that. Help them love it. Well, and this is, you know, I can't remember which episode it was here, but in in the series, we talked about how uh, the training that is required in first and second edition, and and maybe it was by the time we got to third edition, we were talking about it. And I I said something like, um, you know, you have to be careful to make sure that NPC doesn't just come on the scene and overshadow everybody because by their very nature, they're the trainer, they're the mentor. So, of course, they're going to have to be more powerful. It was it, it was when we were talking about the uh, third edition DMG two, I think, and it yep. talks about having a mentor. And I said the caveat is don't let the mentor as the NPC overshadow anything that 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 PC or any of the other PCs are doing. And so here's why I'm bringing this up. This this effect, the way to do this, and the, the advice it gives, and how to create the grandmaster training ability. Right, the, the ability that you get as the reward for going through this and having this relationship with this NPC, that's exactly the way to do this. Yep. And not make that NPC overshadow the PCs because yep. you get something that is not tangible like a magic item, but tangible to the character because it's an ability. Yep. Well, and every time they use it, they are reinforcing the characterization that this previous encounter changed them a little bit. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, this is, it's great story fodder as well as being a mechanical knob to turn if you want to give the the players themselves a reward for making a really great story with you. Yep. You know? This was just some of the best stuff ever to us when this came out. Yeah. And like, it isn't that it's this wild of an idea, not really. It's just, it wasn't previously supported and... This does have good advice around bringing it to life. And I mean, let's be honest, this is a page and a, and a half, page and a quarter. It's a blog post size yep. piece of material. Yep. I mean, but there's a whole bunch of this book that could be very plausibly you know, broken up into mm-hmm. blog posts. Like right. each example skill challenge is one blog post. Sure. Absolutely. And yeah. that's 
or more if you actually broke it down and talked about how to best implement it or other yep. options for failure states and stuff like that. You could do probably a, a three-post series on those. For sure. Um, and it's just that gets to this book using something closer to, th- to the you know, persuasive essay mm-hmm. uh, model that we talked about so much for the first ed DMG. Yeah, compared to the third ed DMG, which is really a reference encyclopedia for those playing the game. Yep. So next we get item components, which, yeah, it, it's their crafting system. Yeah, it says something that it's only one page. I was basically going to skip over it because I don't have yeah. much to say about it. <laughs> well, like we have, we have already done everything I have to say about uh, crafting, including have the part where, though. Uh, hang on, let me finish. Including the part where Rabbit says that's a dirty lie uh, because it is. But uh, we, we've already covered the the very brief ten uh, thousand foot summary. So let's move on before uh, this becomes. <laughs> Uh, the 12 days of British writing about crafting. <laughs> anyway, then we get to the artifact section. Um, the advice on this page is on, on page 147 here, where it talks about artifacts. It's pretty good advice. Um, I don't know that it's blow your mind. Awesome advice. I think it's sort of standard. Here's how to deal with artifacts in this edition. Um, but it's good advice. Nonetheless, it's, yeah, it's like it's, uh, uh, recast stories and goals. It is, really the standout to me. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes it really good advice. Yeah. Uh, but all the artifacts here are, are cool stuff to potentially put in a game. Yep. And you know, the, the DMGs uh, the artifacts are very few in number and, and stay pretty simple. These are some combination of deeper cuts and weirder ideas. Well, you know, one of the things that this book does that it was not present previously is uh, if you look at the sidebar on page 150, it's creating an artifact that can, you know, have a relationship with more than one PC. Oh, yeah. I love that. I'm such yeah. a fan of that. Oh, my gosh. It makes sense in a party-based game. It just makes sense. Well, you remember we talked about this in the uh, third ed DMG, too, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. That whole collective magic item thing. Right, exactly. Yep. That, I love it. It's, it's mm-hmm. so good. Yep. Um, but but all of these are, are solid. Also, it's got the rod of seven parts. I mean, right. of course you need that. How, how could you not need some reference to that in, in D&D? It's, it's iconic. It, you know, there aren't, that, there aren't that many really serious through lines of, of lore in D&D, but the rod of seven parts is one of them. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the eye and hand of Vecna are are two more. Like right. we're burning down this list pretty fast. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah, no, these are good. I I, I like the um, the uh, suggestions on how to destroy artifacts. Right. Uh, the, some of this yep. is some a very um, iconic fantasy tropey. You know, well, gee, how do you destroy that artifact? And and this is a this is a issue in, for example, the um, the madness at Gardmore Abbey that the 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 box adventure for fourth edition. Um, it has an artifact in it. Has the deck of many things in it. And one of the questions is, well, if the party collects the deck, 
do you destroy it? Because it's the deck is separated in at the beginning of that adventure. Uh-huh. Do you destroy it once they've collected all the cards? How do you do that? Well, that's not in the adventure. That's not part of the adventure. But it says you need to think of a way. You know that can be where this adventure goes after that, right? You need to think of a way write the adventure basically that allows the party to go destroy that artifact if they want to. And then it gives like two or three suggestions, but this sidebar on page 161 actually, you know, basically hits all of the standard fantasy suggestions for, well, what would you do if you needed to destroy an artifact? So I appreciate that. Well, and I do love that they're actually just quoting the text from the first at DMG. Well, sure. Yeah. Of course, I love that too, right? Right. Uh, a fair amount of which is actually going to get reprinted in the second at DMG. Uh-huh. Again, it's these kinds of little lore through lines that uh, you know bring peace to my heart in times of conflict. Right. And then it has this next section on organizations, which is basically, hey, here's how to use organizations in your game. And it's basically several, you know, pages of here's here's how to here's how to maybe frame your thinking about organizations as you're prepping your D and D game. Here's what you should be thinking about, and here's maybe how you can use some of these organizations to either fill in the background of the world that the that the party's in, or in you know, shifting powers amongst different organizations in the area where the players are, the PCs are, and and how they might respond to that and how that might affect them and how it could affect that conflict could affect your game and things like that. It's, it's good advice. There's some good stuff in here. It talks about, um, you know, rivalries between organizations and political complications it's it's good some of it's bog standard advice right as with anything but some of these are real gems that it has in here so it's it's a nice little piece on organizations in your game um and then it finishes that off with you know actually defining the elements of an organization and giving some examples of organizations um and these aren't you know your typical factions from you know, any of the published game worlds, it's, it's, uh, you know, some new factions based on some fourth edition publications. So it's not bad. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the Bane Sons is, uh, sort of literally the same as the Zentarim, but I agree with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, yeah. I mean, I don't care about that. I, I was no, just no, saying no, that I, they're, I, I get you. they're trying to be a little bit different. In the, you know, it's not it's not the Forgotten Realms factions. It's not factions right. from Sigil, which I'm yep. surprised about because Sigil's in this book. Um, it's 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 trying to be all new, right? Um, but yeah, no, you're right about that. They are kind of the Zins, but that's okay. But but right, um, it's it's a good section. Um, like I don't think it's being too unkind to say it recapitulates a section from you know books that came before it. Oh sure, um, yeah. It, it, those books weren't written for fourth ed, so it's bringing that advice to a new generation of gamers. God bless them. Yeah, well, that's why I said it's it's good advice. Again, nothing absolutely mind blowing unless you have never actually structured an organization in your game on paper, right? And then having a having this sort of template format, the goal the stated goal, the size, the alignment, the philosophy, the history, the leadership, the headquarters, the membership requirements, and the structure, what activities are they doing, their enemies, their rivals, 
you know, if you've really never created a faction, this is great information to have. Yep. So the next section after this is campaign arcs. And uh, so I like this section. There's nothing in the world wrong with this section. Uh, I value it more for what it is going to uh, support in later books in fourth edition than I value it for itself. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I'm talking about is the, uh, the plane planes above and planes below books, right? Um, The the books about the astral sea and the elemental chaos have uh, campaign arcs laid out for multiple types of Mm -hmm. astral sea and elemental chaos campaigns. You don't get those chapters without this chapter defining its terms and like laying out their thinking. And those sections in those two books are friggin' fantastic. I think there's more 4E books that have the, these types of campaign arcs too. Yeah. 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 Uh, I just in particular love those two books so hard. Uh, I think they're really standout books. Uh, of course they come out late in the edition, you know, late enough that, I wasn't running 4E anymore to use them. No, I, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Plane, plane Below was December 2009, and Plane Above was April 2010. So. Fair enough. Uh, so so I think I can still safely say that this chapter, well, this section of this chapter supports it. Even oh, yeah, if, no, for sure. Right? Yeah, no, uh, definitely. It wasn't yeah. that late in the edition. You know, my bad. I mean, this was September 2009, so it definitely – they were probably working on those books in parallel, right? To some extent, this was being written at the same time as Plain Below was. Man, that really tells you how uh, how weird my just memory of time is. Yeah. I, wow. All right. Yeah. Well, because remember, we had this conversation uh, at the beginning of talking about this book because I said it was I, – I posited that the DMG2 for third edition came out late in the 3E cycle, whereas this book yeah. came out relatively early in the 4E cycle. You know, it, I mean, look, this is – it's 11 years ago now, people, more than 11 years, 11 years and some months. It's been a decade. Like, what? <laughs> I, <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what I appreciate about this chapter. Or this section, this campaign arc section. The Pillars of the State campaign arc. Oh. I want to run that campaign. <laughs> For sure. Or play in it. <laughs> That's great. Um, it's almost like, uh, let's bring Birthright a little bit into the fourth edition. Right. right. I mean, I, I absolutely have um, a good friend who's still running a modified fourth edition D&D uh, here in the year of our Lord 2020, uh, who wrote his own 4E mechanics to support um, like statecraft and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. domain management stuff and proceeded to run a domain management game in Eberron of all places. And everything I've ever heard about that campaign uh, tells me it was awesome as hell. Well, and, I, and I, I also want to say that this Pillars of the State campaign arc is perfect for, if you go back to page 159, the standard of eternal battle, yep. which is a paragon level, you know, uh, artifact. Yep. I mean, like, you know, it just, this, it's just, it's great. It's great. Um, I, I do like the, the, the campaign arc idea. Um, I did not, uh, structure out my campaigns this way. So, 
Uh, this was kind of like a, I mean, I say that I just didn't write it down that way, but I basically, you know, you know, in fourth edition, everything was this tier, that tier, the next tier, you know? Yep. Um, so anyway, and uh, thinking about the game in terms of tier shifts is really good, useful stuff that, Mm -hmm. um, D and D adventure writing both does and doesn't do right. Because uh, all of the, uh, D&D Adventures League adventures uh, are listed by tier, and that's great. Uh, what we don't, I think, have as many clear ways to talk about is, okay, so the thing that differentiates tier 3 from tier 2 is more than bigger, batter spells and hitting harder with a sword. Right. Right. How are the stakes different, and how can you know a three-hour adventure communicate that? Mm-hmm. And that's hard. It is hard. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not bagging on any of the Adventures League writers. Um, I don't know that it's even plausible. It may just be a sort of a, um, a, a lacuna in the format, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But but right. I think that especially in 4e, you absolutely need to be thinking about how uh, right around 10th level and right around 20th level. Uh, you're going to hugely expand the scope of the campaign and you know it needs to still be part of what came before but th- the coolness needs to just blow up a lot at those breakpoints um, mm-hmm. yep it, it's like feeling like well I went from being a fourth level fighter with one attack per round to being a fifth level fighter with two attacks per round and also, my narrative coolness expanded to match that mechanical effectiveness. Right. It, honestly, I could be doing more to support that in my own games. I'm not I'm not trying to stand on a soapbox here. Well, you know what I mean. So I, I do want to bring our attention. Uh, we passed a sidebar that's really good. It's on page 171. And it will not shock you to learn that it's by Robin Laws. And it's about nudging. It's about how the DM behaves when the party is putting their heads together and trying to decide on a plan of action. And it's a great little bit of of Robin Laws-esque advice. Um, I mean, Robin Laws-esque. It's Robin Laws advice, so it is, it is very obvious Robin Laws advice is what I really mean. Robin sounds like Robin. News at 11. Yes, Robin sounds like Robin Laws wrote this piece. It sounds very Robin esque. Yes. Um, not, not Ruben esque. That's different. That's very different. Yes. Although I think probably. Yeah, no, never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, very different. Um, but I just want to call attention to that because it's a great. You know, this book, as much as the. You know, uh, we talked a lot about the sidebars in the third edition books and how. Uh, DMG and DMG2, and how those sidebars were, some of them ridiculous and some of them wonderful. And I find most of the sidebars in this particular book that we're looking at very good. Yep. Yep. There's honestly some of the best quick hit material in the book is in sidebars, for sure. Um, but yeah, they're, they're short essays you know, intended to persuade. Of course, that, of course we love them, right? Right, of course. Um, and then the very last section of the chapter is a uh, dungeon reprinting of a Dungeon Craft article by James Wyatt from um, one of the Dungeon magazines. Yep. 
and it's just about planning your campaign. And it, it's basically advice. It's it's again a a at once persuasive and and also sort of mechanistic how to type of article, as all the Dungeon Craft articles pretty much were. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I read this one in the original printing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I did too. Um, but it, it 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 meshes well with this chapter, and so it's a good way to round out the chapter. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, like you, I'm not sure that calling this chapter adventures is <laughs> the right thing, but, uh, whatever. I mean, yeah. And that brings us to chapter six, Paragon campaigns. Right. And, you know, we've sort of talked about the fact that this is the chapter that's going to lay out Sigil, but, uh, the key thing that's actually happening here is not, uh, you know, learning the details of the Lady of Pain, though I recommend it. She's great. Don't stand in her <laughs> shadow. Um, do not look upon her. Uh, certainly do not argue with her in public. That will not end good. <laughs> um, but what, what's important here is the section starting with, with Paragon status. And like what it means to be in Paragon to your play and how that feels different. You know, it's that thing I just finished saying in the last chapter. Right. Um, like, it, it goes through... I'm just going to read the the uh, subheaders here. Gaining influence, the body politic, joining the elite, wielding power. Like, yeah, that's what they're trying to get at with all of this. Um, you matter. Make sure you actually sell that in every possible way, at, you know, in, in the narrative, in the interactions with NPCs, um, that that's it. That's the pitch. Uh, there's a sidebar on power in a D&D world uh, and what constitutes power. Um, well, the, the, um, the sidebar before that on the page, the facing page there, wreathed in glory, yeah. basically talks about the idea of what it means to flip over from the heroic tier to the paragon tier and how basically this should fundamentally change the way that the PCs perceive the world and the way that the world perceives them. Now it might not happen like a light switch turn on and off, but the campaign should shift in some way to show that they are more powerful and that they are a different kind of person in the world. And then, and then the rest of the, you know, the next two, two or three pages supports that assertion. Yep. Like doing things to make your PCs feel cool, especially as like long-term rewards to, to show them that they are cool in the world. Uh, probably we should be spending a book on that. Like, right. That, that's, that's, I think good DMs know to do it, but it's one of those things that is a um, a, a good becomes great like step in jamming. That's that's my feeling. You know what's interesting? So I hate to keep talking about this, but my D and D brief game, as you know, uh, almost all of the PCs are leaders of some sort, right? They yeah. have, they have either accidentally or on purpose fallen into leading a group of people or or some such. Um, and it's amazing when some clarity happens and the P 
PC who was reluctant to maybe take on that role at first suddenly grows into it and realizes, oh, I have this role. I can now use this for the good of everybody. Nice. And then we'll do that, <laughs> right? Um, it's it's an amazing it's like one of those a uh, proud DM moments, right? When you look and you're like, oh, that was really cool. So I had this 4E campaign that started at fourth level because we just had a different campaign fall apart uh, after reaching fourth level. And in the first adventure, uh, the PCs free this tribe of lizard folk from a black dragon. And I was totally prepared to have them like become the leaders of that tribe, and that was just going to be the campaign. <laughs> and with great reluctance, they said, no, we're not going to do that. Oh, <laughs> like, oh guys. Um, and in in my my current uh, or cash campaign, the one that isn't birthright, uh, the big thing is that uh, PCs who work at it can become officers in the mercenary company that is the like the group patron. Nice. Um, and so, not a lot of PCs have uh, really invested in that, but I also haven't sort of put out the call for uh, officer candidates lately, so I should do that. Right. No, that's cool. Anyway, um, what we're going to what we're gonna get into later in this chapter uh, is, so there's Masters of War. Well, this is their mass combat rules, more or less, sort of. Sort of. I mean, it's a way to preface a mass combat type of situation with some negotiation and some skill challenge type stuff. Right. And, uh, and honestly for 4e, that's, that's fine. They're just trying to tell you how to do a thing that's going to come up in Paragon play. Yep. Uh, then down to the depths, how to run the underdark, you know, in, in a very brief way. Um, so, so darkness in the light is uh, pretty much sort of pilgrims in, in an unholy land kind of concept like what do you do when you go to a, a whole large kingdom sized area that is just manifestly hostile to you and everything about you and I really wish I had had this uh, and, and read it closely when I was running my uh, my 4e game because that was exactly the situation they were in <laughs> um, yeah yeah you get world hopping and masters of reality, which is some um, either Magic the Gathering or Nine Princes and Amber stuff, and right. like put it in my veins. That's great. <laughs> I, I'm so excited. I'm so excited about um, the references to the first world in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're finally seeing like D and D shift its perspective on what their multiverse means and and all of this. And it's just great to me. Well, I love planar breaches as you may know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause I think that's the perfect like world scattering type of location, right? Like, you, yeah, you could make it something that is relatively easy to fix or something that's not. And 
if it's relatively easy to fix, you could still have an entire campaign around trying to figure out, well, why did it happen? Who did it? Was it on purpose? What, you know, those sorts of things. If you make it something hard to fix, well, then you get D and D brief. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and then there's masters of time. So if you want to, uh, do some time traveling, uh, such as, you know, spoilers, the end of, uh, Frostman. Yeah. Well, not if you're running it like I run it, but um, although possibly, I don't know. Yeah. I just think that's the cool ending. That's all. I think it is a great, what the ending. (laughs) And I, I, so here's my problem with it. I, it's a me problem. And I know this, I don't know enough about the forgotten realms to take the campaign back there and do it right. That's super fair. And so from there, we finally get to uh, Sigil City of Doors. Um, and it's a micro setting, basically. I, I ran I ran a, a second edition game about four or five years ago now. And it, I called it Sigil of Brass. Nice. Because what I had happen was, hello, Planar Rift. Uh, but much, much, much bigger deal than a Planar Rift. And what happened was Sigil was there. But something happened, and a third of Sigil was replaced with a piece of the City of Brass, and another third of Sigil was replaced with a piece of Gloomrot from the Shadowfell 4th edition box set. Excellent, yeah. And so these the 2nd edition players had to figure out what happened to make half of, you know, or two-thirds of Sigil go somewhere else, be displaced, and be replaced with Gloomrot and City of Brass. Um, unfortunately, the campaign imploded. That's rough. Yeah, um, but it was it was really fun for about six sessions, <laughs> and uh, and I and I still am totally in love with the idea, and I might I might do it up real good in fifth edition, but we'll see. Oh man, um, so so my friend Colin, who I talk about not infrequently on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, has run two different Planescape campaigns. Uh, one was a very, very skill challenge driven 4E campaign. It was, it was great. It just fell apart much too early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he ran a fifth ed one uh, that really leaned into um, a, an alternate, like, like we got shunted into an alternate history. Uh, okay. And so like, because I really have a pretty good grasp of Planescape canon, but none of the other players at the table did. Uh, mm. They didn't need to know the old Planescape canon. It wasn't helpful anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I could tell them how messed up things were. You know, I, I was that character in a, in a time travel show or whatever, uh, or, or the physicist in a you know, reality show. That's not how it happened. That's not how it's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice. And so that was, that was really cool. Um, and, and so it was like, it was a lot of uh, drama around Eoscar and the lady of pain and nice. just great, great stuff. Yeah. No, that's uh, fun. I don't know. That there's a lot that we actually need to say about, uh, this summary of, of Sigil other than, um, this is a lot cheaper than buying a Planescape box set. Yes. And it's uh, also very awesome. Uh, right. It, it, it's, 
there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, just you cannot afford a plain skip box set. I'm sorry. <laughs> or if you can, buy me one, and I'll thank you on the show. <laughs> yeah. Because those suckers have appreciated in value. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, this is a nice, it's a nice write up. It, it gives you just enough to be interesting and not so much detail that you feel, uh, you feel like you need more or you're hamstrung, you know, um, it talks about all the different wards uh, in town, all the different areas. It, it gives some, uh, some NPC, little NPC, you know, write ups, no stat blocks. Um, or no, no major stat blocks except for a few, uh, and then it has a little, you know, three, two, two or three encounter little delve type of thing where you, uh, oh, it's 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 called there. It's two different encounters. It's a typical street encounter, a typical sewer encounter, um, and it, it kind of uh, highlights a couple of the different um, types of creatures you might find in Sigil, like cranium rats. Uh, um, I, I will just say, if they had had another like two years of uh, ongoing development with 4e, I genuinely want to believe that Sigil would have gotten the the full Neverwinter treatment. Um, I don't know that that was on the table, but I could oh, see that it, it might have I, been. I, I want to believe. Mm-hmm. I know it wasn't. It's fine. Yeah. I want to believe that there is some alternate reality out there where. Uh, Sigil gets a book for Fori as good as Neverwinter. Mm-hmm. And and then there's a two-page spread that's one of my favorite pieces in this whole chapter. It's about gate towns. Yeah. Because um, I used to always really like the idea of gate towns in, in the Planescape uh, material. It always nice. really fascinated me. Um, yeah. And so, and and one of the reasons I like it is because it includes something that was not included in, in the Planescape stuff, and that is it includes Gloomport, which is the gate town that gets you over to the Shadowfell. Oh yeah, so that you can reach Gloomrot, which is totally awesome. Um, and Moonstair, which um, gets you from the Nintervale to the Feywild. Nice. Um, yeah. So so nice. It's it's good stuff. Uh, and then there is a, a short starting adventure. Uh, starting a, bit, a short adventure for uh, to to run in Sigil, um, yeah, and it's 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 okay, it's decent. It's for eleventh level characters, so mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So Paragon, Paragon starting, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, and so it's fine. It's it's um it's all right. Uh, nothing super duper fantastic, um, you know, but it's okay. And then that rounds out the end of the book. Yep. That that is the DMG two, folks, for free. And um, you know, I, I think you probably don't need to ask how I feel about it. It's one of my favorite DMGs of any edition. Um, I have I through this series, I have gained a new appreciation for the third edition DMG two, which I had not previously paid any attention to whatsoever. Yeah, I I gained a new appreciation for the second edition DMG, not because I had never looked at it before, but just because you know having first edition as my formative DMG, 
Um, second edition was just kind of, okay, it's similar topics. Okay, great. That's awesome. But, you know, I don't need to read it closely. And now that I have looked a little more closely at it, I have a new appreciation for it. I have a new appreciation for the reasons I hold third edition as my least favorite edition. Yeah, um, fair. After looking at the third edition DMG. And um, I'm reminded of my my absolute love of the DMG 2 for fourth edition and my kind of, eh, okay, for the DMG 1 for fourth edition. Yep. Um, not that it's a bad book, but, but, you know, it's just a bog standard DMG. It's fine. Yeah, it's utilitarian. Yeah. But that's sort of the best and worst to say of it. Sure, sure. Um, and I mean, it's a necessary book because fourth edition was so different from previous editions. So in that respect, it does its job very well. Yep. Um, I, I guess I am feeling sort of, yeah, AD&D first edition didn't need a DMG too because it wrote the biggest DMG of of all of these individually, right? It was comfortable just being a giant book. Um, yeah, because it's 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 page count is not five hundred pages, but the font is so freaking tiny. Oh yeah, <laughs> that oh yeah, that you know if you were to expand that up to you know the the font of the th- third edition DMG two, you would add double the size pages. Yeah, that. I absolutely suspect it as the highest word count of any of the DMGs, um, but I, I can't look at any of the the DMG twos that exist and not think you could have done the game much more of a favor by like uh, taking the very best bits from this and adding in about two more signatures to the DMG that you had because you went with a lightweight DMG or at least in terms of page count and I get why, but man, the advice that you left out, um, is a real, it, it matters. It matters. It matters on what people think D&D is. Not that people arguing about what D&D is uh, on Twitter always do so in good faith, but that's a different question. Or that actually having a perfect DMG would stop those arguments, but you know. Uh, no, indeed. Well, people are still accusing D&D of things that haven't been true since first ed, if they've ever been true. So what can right. you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the thing is, I wonder if we did a, a, a word count on the 3E DMG, if it would rival first edition. The difference, though, is that there's so many little mechanistic bits in there. Well, I mean, that, there's a lot of little, little mechanistic bits in the first ed DMG. I mean, parasites. Highly yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. But there's a difference between random tables that you might use during prep taking up space, and here's the 18 different types of wall structures and here's the plus two minus two sure i mean the difference the difference all lives in uh how much the text implies that you need to use it as opposed to implying opt-in yeah 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 i mean if if gary had had a way to imply that you needed parasites i bet he would have yeah, probably, 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 probably. Yeah, I'm. I'm just saying though, like the third ed DMG is tiny font as well, and it's oh, for sure. a lot of pages. For sure. So, well, and yeah. they have that uh, that lined paper quality that makes oh, the the text like so much harder to read. Look, I hate it now as a 47 year old. Okay, right. But, but when I saw it in the bookstore when it came out, 
20 years ago. I thought it looked kind of cool. Sure. I thought it was a neat effect in the back of that writing to have it look like almost like a notepad, right? Sure. You were a callow youth of 27. Yes, I was. I was a young, stupid person. Um, and <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I still had good eyes. <laughs> look, my, my glasses prescription hasn't changed that much, but it's just different now, okay? Yeah. Um, I feel but, Yeah, so – uh, you know, nowadays I like, you know, thick white paper with black writing so that I can read it easily, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. Well, we'll play a large print edition. It'll be fine. Yeah, right. Yes. I, I, I want that. I want the large print edition. <laughs> 700 page DMG. I would need twice the number of bookcases. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, I, I'm glad we did this. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, you know, the next thing we're going to do, although not in 12 days format, uh, is the fifth edition DMG. And uh, I said at the beginning of this series that uh, the reason we're doing that is because as the active edition, as the current edition, we feel like the 5e DMG probably needs more than just one or two episodes. For sure. Um, and so we're going to deep dive into that uh, at some point. Um, and try to and try to get through there and 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 talk about the relationship to the older editions and stuff like that. But but mostly probably talk about the relationship to how this makes how this highlights things in Five E that either are new, improved, different, or whatever uh, compared to the older editions. Um, and then with that, I don't. I, do you have anything else you'd like to say, sir? Uh. Just as part of our sign-off. Okay. Um, well, I think then that we can call this the end of the episode. Um, and we, we, uh, I, I'll speak for myself. Um, I, I certainly hope that uh, you've been enjoying this and and hearing us spar with each other and agree with each other and disagree with each other and build upon what we're saying to each other and, and analyze all of these hefty hefty books it's been an incredible delight to hear you know people on twitter and and friends talking to me in in chat uh, say that they find value in these conversations and entertainment that means the world to me yeah yeah me too me too i mean we, we are we are two white guys agreeing with each other uh which yeah. is you know Maybe not the most controversial podcast format. Right. Yeah. But. No, for sure. Yeah. We're also fully aware of it. So, yeah. you know. Um, so where can people find you on the internet, sir? Brandis. You can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Uh, I write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrandisStoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Uh, I'm sure you can read the show notes as well as anyone, but that's B R A N D E S. Uh, it's not a, it's not a common name. It's a it's a German surname that just gradually got shoved forward in my name because my family's German. I don't know what you want to hear. Cool. Hey, it's also the name of one of the four E uh, encounters PCs that yep. was you know yep. yeah. It's, it's one of their iconics. Yeah. I mean, uh, that guy spells his name I-S, but you know, I'm not yeah, here to judge. Whatever. Who cares? It's not my fault he spelled his name wrong. 
Agreed. Agreed. Just you have to go have a little a little word with the writers. Yeah, I mean, pff, come on. Nobody proofread that. Jeez. Jeez. Uh, well, I am DM Samuel on Twitter, and I am at RPGMusings.com, and you can also find me on Twitch on the Midgardia station, where I run my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game, and on my own station, DM Samuel on Twitch, uh, where I run my D&D brief game, and also on the Troll Lord Games Twitch channel, where I run a Castles and Crusades game, because they publish that game. Um, and so I think this is the sign-out of the last of the 12 Days of Christmas what say you, Sir Brandis? Well, I want to uh, hope that everyone has had a Merry Christmas season. This is the liturgical Christmas season I'm speaking of here. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed listening and laughing with us. And I pray to God that we have a better 2021 than we had of 2020, where we can see each other in person. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And with that, I think we're out. Brandis? Brandis? Brandon can speak for himself. Um, I You just called me Brandon? On air? Really? I sure, I certainly did. Wow. Who the hell am I talking to? It's alright, dude. You're not the first person. <laughs> just let you know you did it. Wow. Sorry. It's okay, dude. Wow. Uh, my wife's probably laughing in the other room. Brandis can speak for himself. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe I did that.